This episode has been brought to you in part by the Toronto Heschel School. You are invited to attend their open house on November 10th to discover what makes Heschel special. Visit torontoheschel.org for more details. That's Toronto, H-E-S-C-H-E-L dot org. This is Bonjour Chai, the Welcome to the Prairies edition. I'm Avi Feingold in Montreal, and I'm here with Alana Zakon in Toronto and David Sklar in Calgary. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, we'll be speaking with Mark Oppenheimer about his new book, Squirrel Hill. But first, we have an introduction to make. David Sklar, as you just heard, is the newest member of our team, and I figure we should spend a few minutes to get to know him. David. Howdy, y'all. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, David. Hi. Uh, It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me on for Bonjour Chai. So a little bit about me. Um, While I do live in Calgary and I've been living here for the past eight years of my life, my roots are deeply in Montreal. I spent 25 years there, Um, but I moved out to Calgary for love and I've been living uh, a life of Western values, I would say, since being here. Does that include a cowboy hat? I uh, I can show you my cowboy hat. It is right next to me, if you so desire. But it is it is a white. Oh wow! This is, this is an audio medium. <laughs> we can describe it. Get, go get your hat. <laughs> it is a white Stenson hat. Uh, and despite the fact that you won't be able to see me, every Albertan needs to have a white Stenson hat with them at all times. That's an excellent. Um, Alana and David, you guys have a relationship, no? We do. You made that sound really, not, really not, not a <laughs> We don't a have a romantic relationship. He didn't move to Calgary to be in love with me. Let's just say that. I've never lived in Calgary. Um, yeah, David and I uh, actually knew each other from, from way back. Um, I, I was living in New York for a year after I finished my theater school training, and I came back to Montreal in about, I think it was 2014, and um, I was directing my very first play, Betty Summer Vacation by Christopher Durang, a very wickedly dark comedy, and uh, David was cast in my show, and uh, I always admired him as as an artist, and we kept in touch, and he's also a, a very brilliant playwright and thinker, and we've had many a conversation, especially uh, over the course of the pandemic, with everything that was going down uh, in the Middle East. David and I actually talked a number of times about how we were feeling. So it was a bit of like a support network. Yeah. Other artists that were feeling scared. It was very nice to reconnect with you, uh, especially over the summertime. And we, we had a long discussion when uh, I was on Vancouver Island about two years ago. We talked about the rise of anti-Semitism. We talked about Judaism and our values and dating non-Jews, because um, I am dating a non-Jew. And that was something that we really wanted to bring up. Um, so it was really great to connect with you for that. Yeah. Um, does that, you guys are professionally then, uh, you do the same thing. Uh, David, you're, you're an actor. What, what, what else, uh, tell us a bit about your, your exploits on the, on the, I mean, on he's the a boards. published playwright. I am not, I am not a published playwright. So that's one thing that we differ in, but go for it, David. I'm a bit of a jack of all trades because when the pandemic hit, all actors lost all their employment and jobs. So I, I did a bit of a pivot, I would say where my day job is I'm a standardized patient. And I don't know if a lot of our viewers would know what that is, but basically I role play with doctors, nurses, paramedics, lawyers even, um, to really sort of get them to be more human and to show more empathy and sympathy for their clients and patients. At the same time, also, I I went back to school to be a recreational therapy aid worker. So I work at senior citizen homes too, um, doing a lot of exercise programs with them, working with dementia patients at the same time. Uh, What else do I do? I've written operas for schools. I go into school sometimes to put on plays. Um, every week with me is a little bit different, I would say. I feel yeah, and and you you became quite uh, involved in your Jewish community in Calgary. Can you tell us a bit about that? I really don't know a lot about the Calgary scene. Nobody outside Alberta knows about the Calgary scene. We're gonna fix that, I think, with this podcast. I'm in Toronto now too, so now I have to I have to assume the position that Toronto is the center of of the you know the earth. Nothing exists outside. Yeah, of Yeah, very typical. Please enlighten us. Well, so growing up. Uh, went to Solomon Schechter and Bialik, but basically when I graduated, Judaism meant little to nothing to me at all. I kind of escaped it. Uh, when I came out to Calgary, I was slowly introduced to Temple B'nai Tikva, and I sort of fell in love with it. It was the first time that I attended a synagogue where I saw people debate and disagree, where we were in the morning session, in the morning services, and people would say, that parsha means nothing to me. 
I don't get it. What's the relevance of it? Can we just remove it and move on? And the rabbi and everyone else, we would start to engage as a community together in the moment to sort of say, what is the relevance to the Parsha of the week? How does this have any significance to us? And I sort of fell in love with that. Um, the Jewish community here was wonderful. They were so warm and inviting. I felt like for the first time ever in my life that I felt like I could belong to a Jewish synagogue and a Jewish community. And it's true, while it is more assimilated here, there is definitely less of a Jewish presence in Calgary. Um, it, it felt to me like if I was to be Jewish, I was going to have to work harder here. And in a sense, that mm -hmm. put the onus on me, as opposed to growing up in Montreal, where I always felt, oh, there's Jewish things happening here, and there's Jews around here, and I could always be a part of the Go. community yeah. and be a part of the events, which I never did, because it's just so easy. And in Calgary, it felt like I would have to work at it. And that made mm. me... Um, that made me commit more to it, I would say. Yeah, I can relate to that. I mean, I've lived in a, a bunch of different cities in my life, and I found every time that I moved away from home, I sought out a Chabad. <laughs> no, I'm not like a Chabad goer uh, per se, but when I lived in New York, I went to the Chabad for the NYU students, even though I wasn't an NYU student, but it was a good way to meet other young people. When I went to Vancouver, the only shul in my neighborhood was a Chabad, so it was just like I found myself going to seek out shuls. Avi is nodding his head vigorously right I'm, now. I'm not a Chabad, I'm not a Chabad goer, <laughs> but but everywhere I go, <laughs> well, some... I go to a Chabad. Okay, okay, okay. okay. Let me rephrase that. I'm not like I. It's like saying I don't like I don't like Tim Hortons okay, coffee, okay, 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 but okay. I managed to get let one me, everywhere I go. Let me reframe that. <laughs> um, it wouldn't be my first choice. But it's the easiest choice when you are a young Jew in your 20s to find somewhere to go when you are out in the world. Now that I'm in Toronto and there's tons of shuls around, I have not stepped foot into a Chabad. And there's nothing, I have nothing against it. It just, it's not my, my brand. Um, but it was very helpful in the places that I went to to meet lots of people because Chabad is great with engagement and bringing in, you know, young professional dinners and all that kind of stuff. Um, all to say, the only reason I'm bringing up Chabad is that, you know, in Montreal, I wasn't seeking out a shul for myself. I would go with my family or I would just not go at all. And then suddenly I was living in New York or living in Vancouver and I found myself wanting to feel that familial feeling because I didn't have it ingrained into my day to day, you know. Does that make sense? No, you're very much like my father. Everywhere he goes, he goes to a Chabad. It's, it's personally not, a I, it doesn't fit with me and, and what I see, but yeah. it's it's yeah. have have Chabad, we'll travel. Well, in Vancouver, there was no other option in my neighborhood. I lived in Kitsilano. That was the only one. It was great, but, uh, you know, I have other options now. There you go. We're talking a lot about Chabad. I'm, Let's change I'm, the topic. I, I'm not talking a lot about Chabad. <laughs> Um, <laughs> keeping your mouth shut. That's saying a lot. That, Go that on. is very true when it comes to Avi Feingold. Um, yeah. So it's so glad to have you, uh, on board here. What's the, um, before we move on, what's the, uh, the one quirky thing we need to know about David Sklar? Other than his cowboy hat. Other than his cowboy hat. Okay. So obviously this was exacerbated during the pandemic, but my favorite pastime hobbies are jigsaw puzzling. Ooh. Okay. So I'm, I'm working on a 5,000 piece puzzle right so now. So I start, I, my kids were doing a couple of them, and then the past few months I started buying really, really those the crazy difficult ones. Have you ever seen any of these where you have like the gradient ones or the ones that are, um, they don't have a border? Oh. Right? There's no like yes. edge pieces. That sounds terrifying. So, so you have to like, there, there's no way to get quote unquote started because everything is, is around the edge. And then there's ones that have puzzles within puzzles. Ah. So you have this like rectilinear puzzle, but then, and then in the middle of it, there's a, there's a like, shift. And then there's it's like if Christopher Nolan made puzzles, there's one with the puzzle. There's one series where the puzzle is rotated. The image is the same on the front and on the back, but rotated 90 degrees. I don't like any of this. This is making me feel dread and anxiety. No, no, no. Alana, if you really get into it, it's so um, like stress relieving. It is like taking a hot bath when you really? get, when you're working Maybe on a 5,000 piece puzzle and you find one piece after like an hour search, you, your, your dopamine just goes off and you're like, oh, everything is worth it. It makes me feel like claustrophobic where I'm like, ah, oh, there's too many pieces. I don't know what to do. I'm just going to not do it. <laughs> <laughs> now I have to work on how jigsaw puzzles are a metaphor for Judaism in the 21st century, but uh, not, not right, right now. Well, you have some time to think about it. Anyways, before we get on to our main topic, um, let's hear about our sponsor, David. David, you're not our sponsor, but uh, I'm curious, what is your relationship um, as a uh, young man in the prairies these days? What's your relationship to jewelry, to, to fine watches? If you had asked me that question six months ago, I would have said little to nothing. I own no jewelry. I have nothing. However, it, uh, in the past six months, I am engaged and my partner is now chomping at the bits to get a Tiffany, a Tiffany wedding ring. So I am on the hunt and search. 
And if your sponsor might have a wedding ring like that, I may be inclined to buy it. Well, Atelier does do custom designed rings. So if you have a vision of what you want it to look like, you can present it to Eric and he can make it for you. How that is what Atelier Lou does. Atelier Lou does, um, you know, uh, all sorts of custom designs. He does um, very, very cool lines um, and also has an amazing selection of watches. Um, you know, I've seen this that uh, I, I like the line that the, uh, the the male engagement ring is the watch. Um, and now Tiffany has started doing male engagement rings and other companies have started doing engagement rings for men as well. So let's leave that behind. But, um, you know, watches are often something that men can ease themselves into without having to like have this anxiety about jewelry as being like a thing um but um if we we should encourage you and make it um a thing let's that do we it should uh uh get eric on your case to figure out the best engagement there you go and us. you can even use our promo code bon18 at checkout and then you get 10 percent off your order and it's not just for david it's for everybody so uh go to actually Code BON18, you can get 10% off um, an order. Um, you can co- contact them directly through the website if you have a custom idea. Um, and um, that's about it's it. It's a good thing, too, because my Casio watch is not working anymore, so I may need an upgrade soon. This coming week will mark the third anniversary of the shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue and the death of 11 people from the Tree of Life, New Life, Dor Hadash communities. Mark Oppenheimer just published a book called Squirrel Hill, The Tree of Life Synagogue Shooting and the Soul of a Neighborhood, centered on the event, its precursors and aftermath, and the people surrounding it. Mark is the host of Unorthodox from Tablet Magazine, where he is also a senior editor. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So... What made you decide to write this book and in this specific format, not necessarily following, you know, the events in a strictly journalistic style, but looking at a lot of stuff around the periphery? The book um, called out to me in a way, for one thing, I've been writing about American religion for 25 years, pretty much exactly. So this obviously was the major story of the year, one of the major stories of the year in 2018 in American religion. But I also immediately felt a personal... um, sense that I wanted to go to Pittsburgh and learn more about what had happened. Uh, because, um, first of all, as you said, I host uh, a Jewish podcast called unorthodox, which, um, and we very quickly had people on the ground. We had people drive to Pittsburgh that day. It's about a six hour drive from New York city. And uh, they were there and getting tape and starting to produce a special episode immediately. I stayed behind in Connecticut and helped out from there. Uh, with their production. I didn't go right away. But we had this really moving podcast episode that my colleagues put together, which uh, stuck with me and made me feel that maybe there was more to learn. The other thing, though, and the big thing is that my dad is from Squirrel Hill. He grew up, I don't know, I want to say a quarter mile uh, from the Tree of Life Synagogue. It was not his uh, synagogue but or his family's, but it was his neighborhood, and it had been his father's and grandfather's neighborhood. And there had been five generations of Oppenheimers in Pittsburgh though only three in Squirrel Hill. So this also felt like a community that I cared about on a very personal level as well. And I and I knew that this neighborhood was a pretty special and very old Jewish neighborhood. And I really wanted to see how it responded to this, um, this the, to the worst anti-Semitic attack in American history. Uh, in terms of how I told the story, um, the the structure grew pretty organically from the fact that I think the protagonist of the book is the neighborhood. It's not any one person. It's certainly not the killer whom I was not particularly interested in. I guess I should say alleged killer. He hasn't come to trial yet. But I was very interested in how a neighborhood deals once the media is gone, once the attention has moved away, moved on to the next mass killing, sadly. I was curious what stays behind, how do neighborhood ties and relationships in a community help people survive, help people move on, help build resilience. So the although it loosely goes over the course of about a year and it ends with a um, pretty interesting, controversial one-year commemoration uh, a year after the shooting, it also bounces around a lot within that from different perspectives, different characters, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So uh, when you were going into this project, was there anything that surprised you Uh going and getting all these people's stories, was there any specific, um, 
I guess, impact that it had on the community that, that you hadn't anticipated or any specific moment that really uh, moved you in, in a way that you hadn't anticipated? I think that I was not prepared for the level of cooperation amongst different Jewish groups in Squirrel Hill, that the Orthodox uh, care for the conservative Jews and the conservative Jews care for the reformed Jews and the reformed Jews care for the reconstructionist Jews, and everyone seems to be in it together. And uh, so you had so many people who were not from Tree of Life or Dor Hadash or New Light, the three congregations that were attacked, helping out in the aftermath whether as Shomrim guarding the bodies, guarding the, the corpses until they were in the ground, or with Tahara, the ritual cleaning of the bodies, or just cooking for people, going to shivas, and so forth and so on. That's pretty unusual. Most um, American Jewish communities, most world Jewish communities are pretty fractured where the highly observant don't have a lot to do mm -hmm. with the less observant. And so that level of cooperation was just really, really yeah. cool to see. And I think is something, it was definitely a lesson that people can take away from it. Mark, while I was reading the book, you know, it, it brought tears to my eyes in terms of the resilience of the community and how everyone came together. One thing that kept coming back, I found was, you know, in terms of the shrinking populations, the mergers and the remergers of all these different uh, synagogues itself. I'm curious what you sort of, what, what you're thinking in terms of what will the future of this community look like even after it? Will there be uh, a synagogue to come back to in five or 10 years? I mean, look, what you're talking about is the uh, trend in what those in the British Commonwealth call liberal Judaism, that is to say all non-Orthodox Judaism. And in America, that's divided between reform and conservative Judaism and several other smaller um, groups, Reconstructionist, Renewal, Secular Humanist Judaism, and so forth. Um, basically, every group, every group except the Orthodox, is shrinking in two ways, both through, well, three ways, uh, just general lapse of observance. People don't think it's as important, or, or lapse of engagement, observance, uh, co connection to the community. They're not joining as much. They're not coming together as much in Jewish spaces and for Jewish projects. So that's number one, general American, you know, indifference to religion. Um, number two is intermarriage, and many children of intermarried couples end up uh, Jewishly identified and Jewishly proud, but inevitably some don't. Um, but number three is low birth rate. Uh, because even if all Reformed Jews married other Reformed Jews um, and joined Reformed temples and sent their kids to Reformed camp, their birth rate is below two children per couple. So when two Jews get together, they're not demographically producing two more Jews. They're producing, I don't know if it's 1.6 or 1.7 Jews. So even if everything else were going as the rabbis would have it go, the birth rate would ensure that that community of Jews, absent a huge number of converts, that community of Jews would disappear. I guess absent a huge number of converts or people coming in from orthodoxy, leaving orthodoxy to join more liberal wings. And some of that happens. So that that shrinkage is true in um, America and true in Canada and true in Australia and England. But it's um, it's and it's true, therefore, in Squirrel Hill in Pittsburgh. So the non-orthodox congregations are. Um, you know, having some problems and are merging and their numbers are shrinking. The other thing to be said is that. In America, we are tracing a descent in terms of worship attendance and engagement with religion from a very artificially high point in the early 1960s. If you look at America at mid-century in the Eisenhower and Kennedy years, I think this was probably true in Canada as well, that there was a sense at the time that to be a good citizen was to belong to whatever your house of worship was. So if you were a Jew, you paid dues at the temple. If you were a Christian, you know, you you had some relationship to the Protestant church. If you were Roman Catholic, certainly we're still you were dealing with a lot of that roles. here in Canada, you know, like, cause you know, everything, everything Canada and everything Canadian Jewish is about 10 to 20 years later. Like, like we still think right. that sushi is cool. Right. So, so we're still a little less on the downslope <laughs> of that, but you know, does that mean, uh, does that mean you're still teaching your children cursive? Oh, of course. <laughs> My daughter okay, has good, a fountain pen. I, I love fountain pen. Good. Then I'm then I'm moving to Canada because children can't read cursive anymore. Really? When I write my daughter letters in cursive. Are they just texting? No, American schools don't. Do they even learn how to well, write at all? they can write. They have a. That's good. They have a basic, horrible print. But yeah, I mean, they start. Well, the, the teachers let them type their papers. Anyway, if you guys can hold up, hold on to cursive. I'm immigrating tomorrow. But um, so look, I mean, there was an artificial high at mid-century when everyone as part of their civic duty, and especially if you were from a minority group and wanted to prove you were good Americans, you joined your house of worship. It wasn't that way actually in the 1910s or 20s, nor is it that way in the 2010s or 20s. But but 50 years ago, all you know, if you're 60 or 70 years old now, you have a memory of a time when everyone at least paid dues, even if they didn't go. 
And so that time is is past. And they and that creates a real estate problem. You know, a, a neighborhood like Squirrel Hill in the in the reform and conservative Jewish communities has more square footage than it needs. And so those buildings, including Tree of Life, are largely empty, even in the best of times. Well, the book really isn't an op-ed in any way, shape or form. But um, and and there are moments when you really are moving slightly in that direction. And I want to, based on what you just said, I want to like play up on one of those uh, a little bit. Like towards the end, you talk about how there seems to be two different acts of uh like ways of looking at what was going on over the past year. And there was the individual responses and the communal responses. Um, and without going that far, you, you seem to be saying that the, the communal responses seem to always be, you know, falling a little bit flat, somewhat ineffectual, um, doing things the way that they've always been done, but where the real work seemed to happen and seemed to happen going really well um, over the past, over that year in Squirrel Hill um, was with the individuals and the individual responses. And I would go so far a little step further and to say that to me, individual Judaism is where so much of the good stuff is happening and the accretion of the way things have always been is where we see that life and communal life going towards. Um, is this resonating with you? Do you f- did you feel any of that? You're not uh, really. I would say it's about it's about sixty two percent resonating okay. with me, maybe sixty five. I want to get it to about um, seventy eight. It is certainly well. Let's see if we can work if we can massage our way there. The the um, I mean, on the one yes, I mean. It is true that some of the more the larger legacy institutions um, often do things in a way that doesn't feel highly creative. Although I point out that in the aftermath of a mass killing, having something like the Jewish Federation of Greater Pittsburgh uh, to receive money because people want to give money, they want to help. And if you have uh, and people trust the Federation brand. And so that was very, very useful in terms of giving a, creating a way for people around the world to reach out with their wallets, which was all they could do. Um, and so there's there's a need for all of these. But I, I think here's the problem. I mean, let me put this back to you, Feingold, which is that you know, Judaism actually can't be done individually. There are certain things, you know, we need, we need a minion to pray. We need three people to, you know, to bench after meals. We need uh, a quorum at Shiva to to say the Kaddish. Like we're actually constructed to put people in community with each other, not necessarily thousand family communities, like the really, really big congregations, but at least small little shtibles or, you know, little, little groups. And so I, I don't know. And once you have a little group, yeah, yeah. So I, tell I, me why I, you're hundred percent right. I, no, you're not wrong. You're hundred percent right. And you're also, um, your previous comment is where I think what it was, was that we hit this inflection point in the, in the mid century of the last century where Judaism got almost too big. Right where the where the institutions that were very very good at collecting resources um, didn't necessarily yeah. um, uh, work out well for the collective Jewish life. Where we need communities, but communities of two thousand family synagogues or federations that are large and bloated and top heavy and are great therefore do it get collecting resources but aren't really great at being agile and moving things forward and deciding what could actually be a great path for the future of a community or for the future large or small yeah. right that's where we we're seeing this like it's starting to tip the jenga tower starting to tip over a little bit i mean they're good at the things they're good at right so they're good yeah. at at pulling together large rallies for soviet jewry which is really really important and isn't important anymore so so, and, and I mean, it's too bad that they haven't decided to raise enough money to make all day schools and summer camps free, right? That, that would be a great thing. Oh, that, I argued that, for that, that one that, a few weeks ago on a podcast. Like but, it's uh, crazy. It's crazy that there the, there's the philanthropic money to keep funding free trips to Israel. And I went on birthright. I like birthright, but it's crazy that there's that much money. And we can't just say what the Catholic church said for a century, which is mm-hmm. parochial school is free. Mm-hmm. And now the Catholic church did that because they had free labor from nuns and priests who were living in poverty, but and nevertheless, billions and, billions and billions of dollars and nothing to spend well, it on. Well, I mean, nevertheless, there is enough, there's enough wealth in the Jewish world mm-hmm. that we could be focusing on educating and, and sure. camping our children. So I think that, you know, yeah, there's, there's large, or, but at the congregational level, I'm, as, as somebody who's reported on a lot of Christian megachurches who spent more time in, in um, large evangelical megachurches than the average Jew, I can say it's not a great model and it's definitely not a great model for Judaism. Um, so, th- you know, that is a challenge when certain organizations get very successful and people attach to them 
and then they get they're not going to start turning members away and so they get big and then they have real estate and then they need big real estate and then when they shrink then they have empty buildings and so it's tricky there's no one solution these are organizational challenges to which there's no one solution but i think that one of the things we can say is when you're in a neighborhood where a lot of jews live close together as in squirrel hill as i know in you know parts of Toronto, for example, and once upon a time in Montreal, although I hear that's largely... I'm the one in Montreal. (laughs) Sorry, Avi. Yeah, I hear that. Avi's the only one left. David and I are both... We've been been exiled. (laughs) There you go. David and I are both from Montreal. We've both left. I hear that like Jews just leave Montreal. (laughs) It's really, you know... um, So, but you know, when you have Jewish... When you have Jewish neighborhoods, then you can find, you know, creative ways to shape shift and reconfigure and stuff so that you have the like little 20 family chavara and you have the 300 family congregation and then you have the 800 that's family exactly congregation. It. It's, it's you know. the, but that's what the book shows is it's the strongest advocate for saying it's a neighborhood and a neighborhood yeah. is often smaller units. And not, I mean, when I say individuals, I guess I was meaning a lot the, the person, but the people coming together in small groups, helping and making that work happen instead of saying at the massive institutional level, right? That's where the breakdowns were. Well, another, another way of saying that the resources, but like, yeah. Another way of saying that is like you don't want to overvalue the rabbis and the professionals. That that Judaism is. Hey, I'm a rabbi. Know, is like, and I value you just <laughs> no, about I'm the kidding. right amount, I, oh, but I, I don't overvalue you. Barely so, value myself. You know that, but as you know, but I'm Canadian. As you know, right? Canadians always under. That's why we love you. Undervalue yourselves. The as you know, the, this is not. We don't have a. Even when we had a priestly class, like they weren't. It wasn't like the Catholic Church, right? I mean, it wasn't. Um, they didn't have magical powers, and so the. Um, you know, any any adult Jew should be able to do Judaism, and so you you really want you having a lot of people pay dues to pay a team of five clergy to do Judaism for you is not is not a Hamish model. I I couldn't agree more, Mark. I, I do want to switch gears and and bring up unorthodox podcast. Um, By the way, you're the third David Sklar I've known in my life. Who are the other two? Well, one of them I went to Yale with, and he was from suburban Philly, and he um. He he had the genius of founding. Sorry, this is getting very in the weeds of of. <laughs> you may or may not find this funny. So that David Sklar, it's Jewish Jewish geography. We so love this it. This is really funny. So there was a little fraternal order at Yale or secret society or fraternity or something called Saint Anthony Hall. There's also a chapter at University of Pennsylvania, Saint Anthony Hall, and he founded a, a society for the preservation of 1980s culture called Saint Anthony Michael Hall. Who was in the breakfast? Which is so like, uh, do you guys remember? Do you remember Brilliant. Anthony Michael Hall? That's so niche. Club and sixteen candles. Of course, the so he found. Club. He took Saint Anthony Hall. I said, "Well, I'm fan- founding Saint Anthony Michael Hall, which is just we're going to get together and talk about '80s movies." And it was he was very funny. He also founded the Yale Beastie Boys Syndicate, which just got together and listened to Beastie Boys records. He was like this kind of genius, and I don't know whatever became of him. But whenever I meet a David Sklar, I hope it's that David Sklar, so I could say, "Dude, what became of you?" It, he turned into a podcast it's host not. for Bonjour Chai. But speaking speaking of Davids from Canada, Mark, I'm curious if you would all remember yeah. back in May, a David from Canada wrote into an Orthodox podcast and he took issue with Liel Leibowitz's us and them kind of motif of you're either Zionist or you're an anti-Zionist and now it's time to pick a side. Oh, yeah. That was me. Uh, thank you yes. for taking my side. Yeah, I appreciate good, You were right. <laughs> you were right. Yeah, I'm on your side. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> thank you for writing in. But I'm curious if that at all had any reverberating effects on the audience where Liel really threw down the gauntlet and said, now you must pick a side. It is time to decide. You cannot be in the middle ground anymore. And oh, I'm we're cu- not talking about my book anymore. We're talking about Liel. <laughs> <laughs> I got. I still got. I still got lots of material on the book, but David Sklar. Uh, uh, no, no, we don't. We don't. You know, like, did people leave? No, no, no. I mean, we get some angry letters when Liel writes um, cantankerous stuff. I don't. I don't think we lose listeners for those reasons. Um, I think we lose. I think one thing that happens is people who are sick of us because you know we outgrow podcasts, right? There's podcasts we listen to. 50 or 100 episodes of, and then it's like, okay, we move on to the next podcast, right? And I think that happens. We have a natural churn. And I think some people who have a foot out the door anyway choose to go out with a bang and say, I'm quitting you because of this thing you said. But I don't really think that's why they're quitting us. I think they're just trying to make a statement on the way out the door. Um, Then in in terms of your audience, do you find that that's a growing divide between like you're either a a card-carrying 100% supporter of the state of Israel versus I've got issues with state policy. Do you find that's growing in your audience at all? I don't think our audience is with us or not with us because of Israel. We don't talk about Israel a lot. We don't talk about Zionism a lot. And so I don't, I don't think it has, I mean, certainly we, a lot of the angriest Facebook threads have to do with a comment. Somebody has said pro or anti-Israel, but I don't, 
I try not to fall into the trap of thinking that Facebook commenters are representative. I of hope the not, because there's no particular evidence that they are. <laughs> Gets right? a little I crazy mean, over there. Just people with. Yeah, and I don't check in on it very much, and yeah. I worry about people with too much time on their hands. I mean, we love that they're engaged, but the people who yeah. go get really angry and are like twenty comments in, you yeah, know, I've stopped yeah, I'm checking. Sure you guys get that well, too. If I can say, and, and this is my uh, artful way of, let's say, steering things back towards what you want to talk about, but uh, <laughs> let's bring it back to the pod. Um, one of the one no, of the I'm happy hallmarks. to talk about my podcast. Let's keep talking yeah. about it, but I w- like bring these two together. So one of the hallmarks of these Facebook commenters, if you ask me. Um, is their focus on on hate and anti-Semitism, right? Yeah. It's we have to like you know you're bad for the Jews because X, right? And that off that X often is because you're you're leading the anti-Semites into you know right. you're giving them gold, you're you're feeding into their fears, you're 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 right. going towards the anti-Zionists. And the book, to me, if the other major op eddy sort of thing about the book is that there's so little focus on on the hate on the h word right as uh rabbi myers is as myers says rabbi myers um and you know there's so little focus on that on hatred there's so little focus on um you know this let's dwell on this fear-based you know thing even when you get into the the poe issue that happened six months later right you, you have this detour and you sort of say like hey you know we the people that wanted to look for the fear were like, yes, you see this. And the people that were not, this was so, so demoralizing for them because they were like inevitably going in that direction or they were trying hard. They had to pull back from that. The the work for me, if we can go back towards like what can and should be done, right, is not about yeah. dwelling on hate, dwelling on fear, which again, federations make so much money off of, right, in terms of gathering resources. Um that to me is is a hallmark of Jews who have not much else to talk about other within their Judaism and their Jewish life other than the fear of anti-Semitism and the fear and that that is what defines them. The book really makes this argument that that is not the way forward, right? The people that really seem to be doing great stuff in the aftermath were the people that just moved their one step forward, another step, doing their Judaism, doing the way that they wanted it to be doing it, and not thinking about it as this is my way to conquer fear. This is just what I do, and that's the best way to move Judaism forward. Yeah, I mean, I, look. Would you agree with that? I mean, that? to me, that was to me Abby, that was on Abby has, every Abby has to me that was on every here. single page. It was like here's another example and here's another example and here's another example. And the people that don't do that, they're the ones that are like, hey, you know, you're Wait. clearly on the wrong path. But Ilana, what were you at? You were asking if I agree with that or if, if Avi... Oh, I was saying if you agree with, if, if that's the message of your book because Avi has this grand scheme here that he's trying to rally in all of our listeners to follow him. <laughs> I mean, again, you know, someone asked me, this has come up a lot in the last couple of days as I've been doing a lot of interviews, um, which is really fun because it like stress tests my yeah. book against... Smart people, smart readers. I guess I'm the medieval and, Bible commentator that is like taking this text right. and I, giving it my own spin. No, that's, and you're like, that's great. <laughs> Does it matter? That's great. <laughs> it's funny. And also, I was in an argument yesterday with someone who had written something negative about Dara Horn's book, People Love Dead Jews, which is a great book. What? And, oh, um, what's his name? Just wrote a bad, a, bit, a scathing piece about it. Shaul. Um, oh, wow. Shaul, Shaul really? Maggot. Yeah, yeah, actually, it was him. Know, it was yeah. him I called up. And I was like, that's yeah, a ri- there you go. I said, Shaul, that's a ridiculous piece. I was like, the book is great. And what's interesting is in these conversations, like, so I actually think her book is very much making the case that you're making and that you want me to be making, which is what she's, what, I mean, she ends by saying, as Barry Weiss ends by saying, and I think Barry and Dara would disagree on a lot, but they both basically end their books by saying, like, so go do Judaism. Like, actually, like, they name that there's a lot of anti-Semitism. Yeah. Yeah, except, except that Dara and Barry love the anti-Semitism also. That, 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 that talk is a central part of what they, what they do. Well, it's part of reality, Avi. We can't escape it. We can't just pretend that everything's fine. So here's what I was saying to Shaul, and here's what I, what I, would def- what I think Dara's doing, which is, you know— and and I don't think this is as true of Barry, who really is a, a polemicist and an op-ed writer by by and a, and a writer in other yes. ways as well. But I think her temperament is that of the, uh, you know, her gift is polemicizing in a pithy mm-hmm. and provocative way, and boiling things down. And I think, without arrogating to myself, you know, the claim of being Dara Horn, uh, who's has strengths I don't, who's a you know, among other things, a great novelist, and you know, has fluent Yiddish and Hebrew, and is just a real a phenomenal you know, novel, like a serious mind. Um. What I think Dara and I are doing is working as writers and following where our interests take us. I think we are not very agenda-driven. And I was talking in another conversation yesterday, not with Shaul, but with um, a wonderful woman who's coming to see me talk soon. And as part of a research paper for her master's in therapy program or master's in counseling, 
asked me, you know, tell, basically asked me to talk about my writing as a form of advocacy. What was, when did I decide to become an advocate for victims? And I said, I'm, I'm not an advocate. I said, I have no agenda. I have no policy prescriptions. I'm not advocating for anyone. I'm just telling stories. I'm going in as a writer and trying to gather true things to, that, that people are saying and try to shape them in a way that conveys them to other humans who didn't have the privilege I have of going to the scene, right? Like writers are these intermediaries, nonfiction writers are these intermediaries who go to places either of the mind or in space, in geography, that the reader doesn't get to go to because the reader is a nurse or an electrician or a rabbi or a school teacher or whatever and has a, a grounded job where they don't get to travel to Squirrel Hill or Ground Zero. Mm -hmm. But I do. And so my job is to collect the stories and relay them faithfully as best I can. And I so that. it's not an agenda-driven project. Now, that said, do I think that a fair reading of some of the things I report on is that, um, you know, that in the aftermath of something like this, it's more healing to focus on ritual and the kind of community that Jewish rituals, among others, build out and create than it is to, you know, fret about the anti-Semites? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Like my, you know, Judaism, I, I agree that... Judaism should not be a death cult. It's not about Holocaust. Judaism is not the religion of Holocaust history, which, by the way, is a point that Dara makes. I mean, Dara begins the book by saying, growing up, we were just, people just kept talking to us about the Holocaust. And she thought that was a bad thing. And she's naming this problem, but mm -hmm. she's not endorsing this as a normative way to do Judaism. So, um, yeah, I'm with you. You can use my book right. to those, to your tendentious ends, Rabbi. <laughs> when? Um, I'm curious just to talk a bit about impact. You touched on this a little bit, um, how, you know, pe people will read the book and have uh, that opportunity to go to Squirrel Hill. Uh, while I was reading the book, it made me think about, uh, I I'm an actor, and made me think of a play that you may have heard uh -huh. of, The Laramie Project by Moises Kaufman and the Tectonic Theater Project, uh -huh. which is a documentary theater play where they went in to investigate an, a real thing that happened with Matthew Shepard, who was tied to a fence and left to die. And it's, it's all anecdotes from all of these different people in the town. And it, and it kind of does a similar thing. Like, I felt like your book was like almost, you know, the, the Jewish anti-Semitic version of the Laramie Project. Not anti-Semitic, facing anti-Semitism. Yeah. You know what I mean? I I'm still waking up. Thank I you. I understand you weren't calling me an anti-Semite. <laughs> <laughs> you, you called me out on it. Um, I, I'm just curious about form a little bit, because this is something I think about as an artist um, who is multi multidisciplinary. Um, what made you decide to do it as a book as opposed to, let's say, a podcast series or a documentary film? And I know you are a writer, but what do you think um, doing it in that format adds um, that, that, that led you to make that decision? Um, so first of all, that's, you know, I think that those some of those monologue driven works of theater, not just the Laramie Project, uh, but also other monologue-driven works like those of Anna DeVere Smith, who in some ways created the genre. I think those are remarkable works of art. Um, I'm not a playwright. Uh, I am helping and consulting with a documentary film team that that may do a documentary about the Tree of Life shooting, but I won't be the director. I think, you know, film is a director's medium, ultimately, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm not a director. Um, I think that the reason it ended up a nonfiction book is because the things that have influenced me the most and, and my touchstones when I go to do what I hope is my best work are nonfiction books. Um, you know, I'm thinking of a book that everyone should read um, called Common Ground by J. Anthony Lucas. That's Lucas with a K, L-U-K-A-S, which is the story of the Boston busing crisis of the early 1970s, mid-1970s, when they tried to integrate the greater Boston schools between white and black students by busing students out of their neighborhood. And there was tremendous pushback from the white community and got very, very violent. And it upended the whole city for a while. And he wrote that story. He followed three different families over a number of years, a black family and two white families and wrote a book that was just kind of totally panoramic and kaleidoscopic and brilliant and made you sympathize with all of the different characters. Um, so I think that kind of work um, is really, you know, I think of like the nonfiction works of Janet Malcolm, who just died, who was one of my heroes. I think she was just unbelievably remarkable um, in sort of getting inside people's heads and in a in a really penetrating way. I mean, these, these nonfiction masters are my heroes and as well as a lot of fiction writers. So I seem to work well 
in that vein, I seem to work well at that length. I don't think it's accidental that all my books end up about 250 pages, 90,000 words. They don't, I don't seem to go long at 500 pages. I don't seem to go very, very short and tight. Um, so I think like you probably feel as an actor, you have certain zones that you work really well in certain characters you play, um, but not other ones like, and, and so, you know, I think we all have to know where our strengths are. Um, but I think, but there's a, actually, there's a young playwright named Carrie Menino who graduated from college last year, who grew up in one of the three congregations that was affected. And I want to give her a shout out because she has done a play about what happened based on interviews with some of the relevant characters. And I don't know if she's going to get any more productions of it after it having been produced as her senior thesis. But I think there are people coming in at this in all sorts of art forms. And I think that's that's all to the good, the more the better. Mark, you also mentioned in the book, um, some non-Jews, especially African-Americans, worry that this kind of shooting would really have, would get so much attention, whereas a lot of black murders sometimes seem to be forgotten. Unfortunately, you know, this was not the last mass shooting in the United States. It won't, you know, there will be one coming down, unfortunately, the pipeline in the, in the future. Is there a way for the Jewish community to move forward to sort of say when there is another tragedy like this, that they can also focus on, let's say, the African-American community or the indigenous community? Is there a way that the Jewish community can sort of help other communities when they are facing the same thing? Well, look, I mean, when when the um, the attack on the mosque in New Zealand happened, um, you know, Jews were very, very responsive and very, very mindful. They reached out to they, they were doing solidarity missions and and kind of connect building connections with Mother Emanuel Church, uh, which had, you know, where nine black worshipers were killed. And that was before Tree of Life. But there were connections made there. The, some of the, the Parkland students, I believe, came to Pittsburgh. So there are a lot of these connections being forged. I'm a little bit wary of, you know, th there, there tends to be this demand that we Jews put on ourselves um, and that I think the rest of the world puts on us to always be thinking, now how can we help humanity? Now how can we help humanity? And I think all humans should help humanity, um, and it's certainly something we teach in our religion. Uh, we helped come up with that idea. But I also am very loath to say that in the aftermath of 11 Jews being killed uh, at worship, that the immediate job of the community is to pivot to saying, and now how do we help this other group, right? Like nobody expects that of other groups. And I don't think, you know, there is a, a, a window in which what you expect is that people are going to retrench a little bit into their, um, into their ethnicity, into their ethnic pride, into their sense of ethnic um, solidarity with other people who are like them. This was a moment, for example, when a lot of lapsed Jews or pretty disengaged Jews went back to synagogue even just once or thought, how can I re-engage with my Judaism in some way? And that's, I think, a very natural human response. And I don't, I don't think we should stigmatize that. The aftermath of the Tree of Life shooting for at least a week or a month for people who are in interested is going to be a time of reflection on Judaism and Jewish continuity. And that is as it should be. Um, yeah, but it is also true that other communities are perfectly free to look at the response to Jewish death and say, do people care as much about death in our community? And this was complicated because, of course, it was a big mass killing with 11 dead. And there is a human tendency to focus on mass killings of any community rather than the slow drip of deaths that, you know, I mean, the gun violence in Chicago, which has been taking like more than one life a day for several years, the scale of it is so astonishing and and yet it would be totally imp impossible for f given human nature for there to be a response like the response to tree of life because humans tend to respond to like big explosive events and that blinds us to a lot of slow equally catastrophic events that happen in slower geological time like you know, the deaths largely of black men in Chicago right now or climate change, right? These things just don't register with us as much. So I don't think we we should, we should always strive to do better, but I don't think we should stigmatize ourselves in the meantime. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting because the, uh, the, the scene where Rabbi Myers, you know, has that request and it's almost a year later in Rosh Hashanah, right in the end, towards the end of the book, right? There's this, uh, the high holidays show up and uh, they're, they're, in a ch they're in a church and uh, he's doing these services and uh, he has this request for people, which is basically, I mean, I guess what I've been saying, um, you know, about just come back to Shul. We, we, we're missing 11 people now. We, you know, we need, we need Shabbos people. And, and the response just falls flat, resonated with me so much, right? I, I had a microcosm of that in my very brief career as a pulpit rabbi. I, uh, 
we, we at some point we realized two puppet rabbis in one house was not a good idea. So I, you know, I took that step back. <laughs> He's married to a, a um, rabbi. Anyways, um, for context, but like it's you know, I, I had this moment. I remember uh, when I found out that the synagogue uh, that I was at at Neila would blow the shofar, and then everybody would like pile out of the synagogue, and then there'd be nobody left for Mara for evening services, right? at that point and Ooh, i knew yeah. that a lot of other synagogues right. had this moment where they took the shofar blowing and they uh pushed it back to like after marv right um at the very very end of the service and pe- which sort of like yeah. trick people into sort of like saying like hey uh the service ends now when they like when we decide that it ends and not when it technically ends and then you go away right. so i went and i asked and i i got up before Naila and I said, you know, uh, towards the end of Naila and I said, listen, we're going to do this. I want to thank everybody. Um, we're we're uh, going to blow the shofar. Um, the custom in this synagogue is to do it at this point, but there's still Marv afterwards. And uh, I'd like everybody to stay for five minutes. Do me a favor. It's my first year here. Um, stay for an extra five minutes so that we can have this nice going out instead of this mass act. Yep. And it, I, yep. I said it, we blew the shofar and less than five minutes later, the entire synagogue empties out. Right. And it totally wow. fell flat on its face. And I was yeah. like, oh, my God, that Rabbi Myers uh, moment was just like, I feel so oh, bad. He's asking people. I feel so a bad year for you. after like <laughs> this major calamity in his synagogue. No, wait a come second. to shul and nobody's listening. No, wait, no, wait a second. No, wait a second. But don't you also I mean, you also do a Havdalah, right? To at the end of. Yeah, but they didn't care about that. They wanted to hear the shofar. See, that's and, interesting because I that's you have to remember the Montreal. My, the Montreal way of Jewish Judaism uh, is sort of the European way. As I like to joke, the synagogue that I drive to on Shabbos better goddamn be an Orthodox one. Right. right. Cause, cause no, it, I'm just thinking at my shul, which is, which is pretty observant, which is like conservadox, people stay because we really, everyone really likes Havdalah. They like, yeah, nobody they like cared that about feels Havdala. like the end. Nobody <laughs> yeah. cares about Havdalah. That's so interesting. Because does I everyone love Havdalah? Havdala. I'll stay yeah. for Havdalah, Avi. Just before we wrap up, um, I just... This is my first time hosting on Bonjour Chai. This was my first introduction to it. So I just want to know. Oh. <laughs> I just want to. Do you want to say You please do. Um, if you have any advice for a newish Jewish podcast host, I'd love to hear yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's funny. The last time we we consulted with a, a new, new, I mean, new podcast member or team was with Catholics. The um, America Magazine, which is a very good Catholic magazine, had some uh, people starting a podcast, which is still going a few years later called Jesuitical. And, um, and they were big fans of unorthodox and they were like, how do we do this? And, um, you know, our advice is basically like, be more Jewish. Uh, but (laughs) you know, they don't, they don't swear a lot. They're very polite. No, they're fabulous. They're fabulous podcast hosts. Um, (laughs) but, uh, but I, I worried, I worried it would be too good as a podcast. And, and the, um, they proved me wrong. I mean, I think that, I don't know. I think the main thing that keeps us going is that we like each other and enjoy each other's company. We never think that we're, we never think that we're doing advocacy. We don't think we're doing Kiruv. We're not mm. doing outreach. We're not trying to make more Jews. We're not trying to make Jews more Jewish. We're not trying to promote Israel or censor Israel. We're really just um, trying to have intelligent and hopefully fun conversation. And we're trying to expose people to interesting guests. And sometimes we, you know, produce segments that we hope show people interesting slices of life. And, but if it ever stopped being fun or if it ever felt like it was beholden and we have people, this is really interesting. Sorry, do you have 30 more seconds? I don't want to overstay my welcome, but, but I'm basically keeping you on the line long enough until you agree to a crossover episode with Bonjour Chai and Unorthodox. Oh, well, totally. Yeah, it's done. We'll do it. Well, just send me a note. Propose to me how we'll do it. Like, what will it be? Is it just six people on the line? Like, is it (laughs) Americans versus Canadians? Yeah, you have to. I'm serious. Like, come up, come up with the game plan of like, what, what's our, what's the show going to be? I am, I am absolutely on it. it. And we'll do it. Um, So, I mean, I'm committing us to doing it, but you got to get me the, like, I got to give them a, a one page like, here's what they want to do with us. Um, so, but it is interesting that the bigger we got, and it's not like we're big, you know, we're not, uh, we're not like this American life big or to, to put it in Canadian terms, what's his name? Um, heavyweight, Jonathan, what's his Jonathan name? Jonathan Goldstein. Yeah, we're not Jonathan Goldstein big. So I'm trying to speak Canadian for you, but we're, you know, we're, we're, oh, thank you. We're Jewish big. Throw in a few more A's. <laughs> it is great to hear you guys say a boat. I mean, it's like, it's just, cause I lived with, <laughs> I lived with a, it's not as exaggerated as that. No, but it's more exaggerated than you think it is, is the thing. Like, Canadians don't think they yeah. do it that, that much. Right. And I know. It's but, true. 
this a whole different wormhole we could go through. Um, you know, we tablet one of the best pieces we ever ran was by some Torontonian, I think, about why Jews don't have the Canadian accent, why Canadian Jews don't sound typically oh, yeah. Canadian. And I think the general oh, I idea... I read that. I think about that a lot. So go find that piece. And by the way, there's room for more pieces on this because I don't think I don't think she covered the waterfront on it. I think it was a good piece that, that, had, that left certain things unsaid and I think you should pitch us something. Yeah. But... And it's oh. interesting because I think on the one hand, the typical Canadian accent is a working class accent. So part of it's a class thing, right? Like when we think about the real like hockey fan with like the Tim Horton sandwich and whatever, doing A and a boot and whatever, and you know, they are, oh, I'm so sorry. They're they're not urbanites, right? So part of what's going on is a kind of hmm. class division where that's not who the Jews are. I just heard about this this week. But there's yeah. also there's also the fact that in certain countries, the Jews have just retained a different lilt because they're two or three generations from Yiddish speakers. The question I've yeah. always been trying to get to that maybe you guys as Montrealers can solve is, I know this is true in the Anglosphere. Like I know that the Jews in Melbourne can spot other Jews by the way they talk. They don't have the same Australian accent that like some Gentile Australian surfer has. What I'm always wondering is, is this also true in non-English speak? Like, is it true in Paris? So or, here's what I noticed about Montreal, and this was interesting. Um, yeah. Was that right? Is it true in I, French? So I grew up in. I grew. Up, I'm a Montreal originally. I spent ten years in the U.S. And when I came back, I noticed something very specific. Um, was that I always used to be able to tell um, a Jewish sounding individual in um, in French because they sounded more French than Quebecois. Interesting. Um, right. the, well, that's because a because lot of Jews. A lot of Jews were from originally from Morocco, Moroccan. and the Moroccans in had Montreal. the French accent, and so you can generally tell that somebody was a Francophone Jew because they were speaking with a French accent instead right. of with a Quebecois accent. When I came back after ten years, that had shifted, and um, you started hearing many, many more young Jews talking with a Quebecois accent than with a French accent. Interesting. Um, so interesting. that was a really well, interesting. As I think really in America, I still feel, I feel happened. like it's still pretty Moroccan, but I mean, most but, of like. The Moroccan Jews are still fairly new in Mon in Montreal specifically. Like, there's a huge Ashkenazi, uh, you know, backbone. Oh, shoot. To, the, to the city that yeah. that was the first wave. My wife says I speak speak French with with I speak Hebrew with a French accent. I mean, the, the advice but is anyways. just like have fun. I mean, oh, as I was saying, is as we get bigger and bigger, there are more people who's like you are representatives of the community. You are the podcast, so you have to address this issue. Like to let it go unsaid is is violating your commitment to the community. And we just resist that. It's like, well, then go get another podcast that you're officially, that has the official imprimatur of the community. Like, we didn't sign on when we crossed our 10,000th listener or our 20,000th to being, like, responsible to the community and being upholding Jewish institutional standards. Thank you so much for having me. And um, Thank you. We will talk again soon. Can't wait for the crossover. Thank you, Mark Oppenheimer. We cannot wait to uh, do the do the crossover and uh, go read the book, Squirrel Hill. It's really good. It's really moving. Till next time. Our word of wisdom this week comes from Rabbi Shlomo Schachter. Rabbi Schachter is the associate rabbi of Congregation Shari Tzedek in Vancouver. Shalom. Uh, I'm Rabbi Shlomo Schachter at Shari Tzedek Synagogue in Vancouver. This week's Parsha, Vayera, uh, has one of the most difficult and confusing episodes of the whole Torah, sort of an iconic scene, and that's, of course, of Akedat Yitzchak, the binding of Isaac. One of the things that we look at in Judaism is if we as a people or as an individual in certain circumstances would be willing to give our life to, for Hashem. Am I willing to give my life to sacrifice it? And that's what we call dying al-Kiddush Hashem, that in certain situations we're called upon uh, to be a martyr, and to give our life rather than to compromise our principles uh, for idolatry, for example. Uh, but usually when we think of giving our life for Hashem, uh, we think like Yitzhak Avinu, that means to die uh, for, for God. But that's not giving our life, that's uh, uh, sort of giving our death. Uh, and if you look closely, it never says in the text that uh, Avraham was instructed to kill Yitzhak. It just says, Make him an offering, a whole offering. Uh, and so we can learn from this, and we see that at the end, that the offering that was asked of Abraham to give and of Yitzchak to be was not an offering uh, that dies, but an offering that lives. Uh, and so we think about, would you give your life for Hashem? Is not a question of, are you ready to die? The question is, are you really ready to live? 
Are you ready to give your life for Avodah Hashem, to make your life about serving God, to serve God's purpose, to give your life uh, to Hashem and not to give your death? And there's so many ways that we can do that. But, you know, the most simple thing, we wake up in the morning and say, Thank you, Hashem. Uh, I, I want to give you another day. You gave me another day. I'm going to give it back to you. And then we look at our day. How can I serve you today? How can I be of help? How can I be a, uh, to serve your purposes? And so many of the things that we do uh, as Jews are about give, sharing our life with God, giving our life to God, giving our, our work and our energy, uh, our food, you know, all of the things that we're integrating into our life. We say we really want to be givers. We want to come into the world uh, as ones who are going to contribute, not consumers, but producers, producers of Torah, producers of light, producers of Judaism, producers of joy, producers of, of chesed, of, of kindness. Uh, and, and all of the depth that we can bring to our life uh, is, is best offered to God. We're best when we're able to give it. Uh, and rather than going through life looking, what can I get out of life? What can I get from this? What can I get from that? What can I take? Uh, how, how can I take advantage of this person or that situation? But rather uh, to look like Avram Avinu and looking out for some guests, looking for some opportunity to do chesed, some opportunity to do good in the world, to really be an offering to Hashem, to give our life to Hashem and not our death. And now it's time for our Nachas of the Week. Nachas of the Week is where we uh, try to come up with something that is uh, newish and Jewish and interesting uh, that is come across our attention um, this week. David, what's your Nachas of the Week? My Nachas of the Week is for Jeff Itkush. Jeff Itkush was my former Jewish history teacher back in Bialik, and he got engaged this week. So I just want to wish him all the muzzles, uh, and I hope he has... Um, a wonderful future with his significant other. Mazel tov, Jeff Itkush. Great nachas. That's so lovely. Alana, what's your nachas of the week? Mine's also personal this week. Um, I have been wanting to practice my Hebrew again for a really, really long time. I don't remember if I've ever brought this up on the show, but I went through the full Jewish day school, you know, elementary, high school. I had excellent, fluent Hebrew. And nobody warned me that if you don't keep it up, it kind of goes uh, <laughs> away, especially because I also speak French. So sometimes I would bump into an Israeli and what I thought was Hebrew coming out of my mouth was actually French. And it was very confusing and very frustrating. And uh, I've been searching far and wide to have some kind of way to fix that and uh, met someone recently who has a Hebrew uh, conversation group at a cafe every week in Toronto. I, it, it's not public, so I'm not promoting it for everyone to come and sign up. But if you are interested, you can uh, email me. <laughs> Uh, and maybe we can figure something out. But it's been really great because uh, in the last few months before I moved to Toronto, I started reaching out to more of my Israeli friends. And I was like, I really want to get my Hebrew back. Let's just talk. And slowly I could feel a huge shift. And now that I'm going to have this weekly Hebrew group, um, it might get even better. And that makes me very happy. Speaking of Hebrew, this website is it's not a new website. It's not my Nachas of the Week. But you should absolutely go check this out. Um, BadHebrew.com. Um, badhebrew.com oh is specifically it's it, i mean it was about 10 years ago when we had everybody had these ultra specific niche blogs and this was this israeli yeah. who was documenting photos of bad hebrew tattoos that were like oh those are the worst <laughs> and and then, like, just, correcting for them. so many reasons <laughs> i just can't um you got to go check them out there. It's it's really funny, a little sad, a little scary. Um, badhebrew.com. Um, you can bring that up in your Hebrew conversation group as like ways to like. Move I will. I'm going to bring it up tonight. I will. Um, Avi, what's your nachas? My nachas of the week um, is another art piece. She's not Canadian. Um, this woman, Sophia Zohar, um, has this. Um, she's an artist and she's doing merch and art prints and stuff. And uh, she goes by there. It's kind of cool. It's black and white, kind of like a dark edge. And um, I just she came across my radar through a friend of mine. And uh, the best part about it is the name of her store and the name of her her art name I guess you would call it and there's a couple articles about her this one on Hey Alma and uh, check it out the company is called Maimonides Nuts and um, she has some really nice I'm seeing it's not my name I can't just, just, <laughs> just saying it out this, like, saying it out naughty. loud I feel like I read it I wouldn't even get it and yes. now that you said it out loud I'm like okay all right um so um, she has some nice Hebrew-related art, um, really nice, like some Gothic-ish sort of looking prints I uh, and merch and stuff. Go check it out. It's kind of fun and interesting. Um, Maimonides Nuts, Sophia Zohar. That's my Nachas of the Week. 
Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for Thursday, October 21st. Our producer is Michael Freeman. Technical production is by Andre Goulet. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our new page at the cjn.ca slash bonjour. You can reach out to us at bonjour at the cjn.ca. Um, you can send us all sorts of recommendations. We're still looking for recommendations for uh, books to cover in the month of November. Um, you can send us anything. You can send us comments, critiques, uh, send it to bonjour at the cjn.ca and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Avi Feingold. I'm Ilana Zakon. And I'm David Sklar. 